give thanks to the Lord, for God is good, and God's steadfast love endures forever. Let us worship the Lord our God. Sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David, I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. Happy are the people who know the festival of Shabbat, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. They exult in your name all the day long. 
and extol your righteousness. Gracious creator of our days, who spoke and the world came into being, who gave breath and all of your creatures began to sing, hear our praise. Tender redeemer of our days, begotten and beloved son of the Father, friend of sinners born of Mary, to save us from life without you. Hear our gratitude that you have assumed our every broken alleluia. Holy Spirit, brooding still over the chaos we have made, gather each sigh too deep for words into a sustained cord of delight, that together we may glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord. And because it is in God's name that we have met, it means that our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome here at First Church. We do ask everyone, members or guests alike, if you would kindly sign the friendship pad, which you will see on your pew. Sign it, send it down and back again, and we'll have the advantage of each other's names at the conclusion of worship. And likewise, we'd like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door next to the pulpit and down a short walk. There you will find some light refreshments, but most importantly, you'll find the opportunity to gather in fellowship. I'd like to highlight a couple things from our, for our common life together that are upcoming. The first is to note that next Sunday is our annual Hymn Sing Sunday, and it's exactly what it sounds like. There's no mystery there. We're going to sing a lot of hymns in the context of worship. Our regular worshipers at the 9 o'clock service, we hope, will join us. So you may have a little bit more of an element of joyful noise as we have young children in the sanctuary with their instruments and their opportunities to make noise. We welcome them, of course, to be in worship with us. And we'll follow that with an ice cream social afterwards. A note about the hymns. If you have a hymn that you would like that is not in the hymnal, and I should probably add that we didn't sing in last year's hymn sing as part of that, send your request to Andrew Sin. We'll do our best to accommodate it. Everyone else, we're going to call on you in order to, to call out your hymns. It'll be a little bit of a, uh, a workout for Andrew to play it all without ever having looked at it before, although he's played all these hymns before, I suspect. Uh, but we're going to put an element of luck into this. There will be a lottery by which the hymn selections will be chosen. So, all sorts of fun and games next week as we sing hymns together and give praise to the Lord our God with our voices. You'll see as well that we're still seeking folks for our time capsule, which will be put together in September. Uh, there's not a ton of urgency to it, but I know Karen Morriston would love to hear from you, and there's a sign-up sheet on the bulletin board if you'd like to participate in that. With all these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. The Lord waits to be gracious to you, says the prophet Isaiah. Therefore God will rise up to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So in confidence, let us together confess our sins. Holy God, your ways are not our ways. 
and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Where we stumble through life, looking for hope in the midst of bad things, you know the arc of redemption already. When life tumbles in and we are bruised by circumstances, you know depths of divine love for each of us that we can only slightly comprehend. We cry out, how long, O Lord, before we have done anything about the matter at hand. Yet even still, when our questions overwhelm our ability to remember your promises, you hold us even closer, more ready to forgive than we are to ask. So we offer you as much of ourselves to you in confession as we can bear, knowing that the fullness of all of us is already known to you. The Lord will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry, Isaiah continues. When the Lord hears it, he will answer you. Though the Lord may give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. That word and that way is Jesus Christ, who hears your cries and forgives. Therefore, believe in the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. From the 22nd chapter of Genesis, a foundational story for Israel, known as the Akedah, meaning binding. Listen for God's word with the help of God's spirit, hidden in the story of the binding of Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham. God said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. 
Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Gospel lesson is from the 10th chapter of Matthew. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. Thanks be to God. final reading of scripture comes to us from the Psalter, from Psalm 13. Listen to the word of God. How long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, for I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But... I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. 
I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. that you can go at it with, hammer and tongs. My hunch is there is one person, maybe two if you are lucky, with whom you can argue without reservation, uh, without much fear of the consequences. If by chance you are sitting next to that person, feel free to grab their hand right now and give it a little squeeze to say, I know that I might be ever so difficult from time to time, but I love you and I love that I can share my whole self with you. My hunch is that person is probably someone very, very close to you, a partner, a parent, a sibling, or a close friend. Mind you, I am not holding up contentious relationships as a goal to be achieved, but I do believe that the ability to manage conflict in a productive or at least minimally damaging way is a marker of a healthy relationship. I mean, I'm not advocating that you argue over the remote or the thermostat, but I think that's healthy to care enough about someone that if you must do it, you know that you may do it without fear of what will come next. I've known for many years a couple who has two speeds, fighting or making up. For me, that would be a miserable experience, but for them it seems to work, and they've been married for well over 45 years now, so I have to assume that their arguments take place within the framework of a happy enough marriage of a durable relationship. Now, by and large, I expect that most of us prefer to minimize conflict, if not outright avoid it. But the nature of relationships is that into all of them, some differences of opinion must fall. Resilient relationships 
are the ones that know how to absorb it. That is the sort of relationship that we encounter this morning in the psalm. You will recall from two weeks ago that the Psalter holds a wide range of emotion and pathos within its poetry. Certainly there are, as we observed two weeks ago, full-throated hymns of praise that stand ready to help us to raise the rafters in the context of worship. And likewise, there are laments that hold space for us to claim our most sorrowful moments in the security of God's love, in the assurance of God's redemptive purposes, and in those moments when we need it with the certainty of forgiveness, those worst moments when we most need it. Typically, the movement of faith, and certainly the movement of the psalm, is a relatively predictable pattern. The progression is from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. Our own personal faith development may well be a microcosm of that Reality. We are born and develop, and if we are exposed to the stories of faith, they may help us to orient our lives. God made us, and that tells us something of who we are and where we exist in creation. We read of the stories of Noah, and they tell us something profoundly important about God's righteousness. These stories tell us of our origins and, and how we are to behave in reference to the world around us, in reference to God. That's orientation. It helps us to know where we are and who we are in the world. Then somewhere along the line, some form of disorientation breaks in. Perhaps it is something simple. We learn in schools that all major faiths have a flood narrative to them, and we wonder how ours might be unique. Or we parse the questions of how the world came to be populated and the certainty of our orientation, that childlike certainty that comes from the faith that we have in childhood stories, is called into question. That's disorientation. Most of the time, that comes around the time that we develop from concrete thought into abstract thought. There is a reason why college students drift away from church, and it isn't entirely the inconvenient 11 a.m. hour. Then, if the pattern continues, some event causes us to reconsider the faith from which we have become disoriented. Something suggests to us that perhaps there was some essential truth in those old stories, like the creation and the flood, so that even if we know that they aren't 100% factually accurate, which incidentally is a consideration that didn't trouble their authors in the least, we can nonetheless see the truth of it and ground our lives in it. 
and be shaped by it. That is reorientation. So there's a progression of faith for you. Moreover, that pattern holds as we consider events that lead to crises in our own life, perhaps. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation, problem, grappling, solution. Our Genesis text today deserves its own sermon. And three years ago, when we were in the midst of the pandemic and this text came around in the lectionary, I preached on it. And I may well drag that out of pandemic mothballs some days and, and revisit it. But if we look closely at it, that is its pattern as well. Orientation. Disorientation. Terror even. And then reorientation. But here in the 13th Psalm, the singer plunges straight to the hammer and tongs phase. There is no orientation, there is no build-up, no backstory is given. The singer just lights into God. How long, O Lord? If, if God were a person, this is the moment when I imagine God's head shaking and eyes bugging out. This lament comes as an ambush. How long, O Lord? This is the sort of interrogation of the Almighty that comes when the singer is either in such a profoundly trusting relationship with God that interrogation is allowed, or is so close to the end of their rope that they don't really care whether the relationship is durable or not. I confess that there are some moments when a plaintive, how long, O Lord, strikes me as hollow. When capable people recite it instead of addressing what needs to be addressed. In those moments, one might even consider God answering as long as we keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. But here, on the lips of the psalmist, the question, how long, O Lord, is a rhetorical question. The psalmist already knows the answer, but the question nonetheless needs to be allowed to hang in the air a moment. How long? I can almost hear the psalmist saying to God, don't answer that, just think about it a minute. Go to your room and think about what I've done. No, the psalmist knows the answer and knows that it is coming soon. But before we move to reorientation, the lament needs to be allowed to hang in the air a while. There are some events, some exquisitely painful occurrences, that need 
to be allowed to hang in the air a while. These are the occasions when rushing to resolution does more harm than good, when the shushing of grief re-injures those struggling to heal. Those of us of a certain age will remember a scene in the movie Forrest Gump, where Forrest and Jenny, having returned to their hometown, make their way out an old gravel dirt, really, country road to a ramshackle abandoned house where Jenny's miserable childhood took place. As they stand outside the house where Jenny endured a horrible childhood, she grabs a rock and throws it at the house with all her might. And then she grabs another and another, raining down rocks on the house as Forrest muses aloud, sometimes they're just aren't enough rocks. Isn't that the truth? Sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. Sometimes the lament needs to be allowed to hang in the air We don't know what prompted the psalmist to launch into this dirge. It is lost to the mists of time. But we do know that the rabbis who compiled the Psalter and pulled together the Hebrew scriptures thought that this was an important psalm for us to hear. No more than that. The rabbis knew that this was an important song for us to hear. When I church, uh, served a church in Scotland for a summer many years ago, I reserve, observed to uh, a host of mine the surprise that I felt at the popularity of American country and western songs there. My host replied, oh yes, we Scots love our sad songs. It's probably because the history of Scotland is the story of a hard life. You could say the same thing about the ancient Israelites and the Psalter. The history of Israel is the story of a hard life life. And when life is hard, it is of vital importance to be able to share with God and with one another the challenges of faith and life, which is why the question, how long, O Lord, rendered in any tone of voice is not sacrilegious. It is not blasphemous. It is real and it is personal and most importantly it is what God wants us to do. Because our sad songs don't fall on deaf ears. 
God hears the lament of our hearts. And we can't just shove it away and put it away. It must be dealt with. It must be lived with. It must be healed from. I remember one time, I, I was so mad about something, and it's sort of funny now, I don't remember what I was so mad about, so it must not have been that important at the time, but I was so mad that it had to come out. But the problem was, I couldn't get anyone to argue with me. And I remember saying, well, I can't just have this argument with myself. Sometimes we really do have to work it through. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Perhaps that's why the rabbis made sure this song stayed in the hymnal. Because they knew that we needed it. We needed to see and hear the lament of others to give context and life to our own lament. But even more than that, we also needed to see and hear when the tune changes. And the tune does change. Around verses 5 and 6, there's a key change in the song, and things start to look up. Notice the verbs, trust, rejoice, and sing. From disorientation, we move to reorientation, and it is the psalmist's own verbs that move us there. From unreasoned speech and urgent appeal emerges a, a leavening of the song, and we turn from interrogation to new words, trusting, rejoicing, singing. Walter Brueggemann writes of this psalm, the dramatic movement of the psalm from disorientation to new orientation is marked by the three uses of the name Yahweh. In verse 1, Yahweh is named only to be assaulted. In verse 3, Yahweh is named with an appellation of intimacy as the, appeal, as the ground of the appeal. And in verse 6, this accused Yahweh has now become the praised Yahweh, object of doxology. All in the space of six short verses, it feels like theological whiplash. The psalmist begins at the point of crisis, but faith moves her to a new and better place of trust, rejoicing, and doxology. And it may be six verses of a psalm, but we don't know how long it takes. We don't know how long it takes in our own lives. We certainly don't know, don't know how long it will take in the lives of others. But we do know that it is the promise of the gospel that healing does come, that joy follows sorrow, that redemption is always the end of the story. Which is to say, the question isn't answered. How long, O oh Lord? And think about your own life. How often that type of healing, that type of resolution, is discerned only in retrospect, when we pan back over the totality of our lives and see how we have moved from disorientation to new orientation. One of those things 
It's hard to quantify and almost impossible to describe, but we know it when we see it. And I realize that has just a whiff of being what a seminary classmate of mine liked to call a quote-unquote pat Christian answer. And I understand why being told to wait it out, to trust in God, hearing things like it's always darkest before the dawn, that may not be helpful when you're in the midst of it, whatever it is. So I can tell you instead that we take comfort in the knowledge that no less than Jesus Christ himself went through the same thing. So God knows what it is we feel when the words, how long, linger on our lips. There is an old adage, it is often attributed to Winston Churchill, it is sometimes credited to the Irish, and it is sung about by at least one country crooner, when you're going through hell, keep going. Now I've been known to dispense that little chestnut of advice from time to time myself, because when things are at their lowest ebb, it is probably not a good time to stop and become a tourist. When life is falling apart around you, it's probably a better idea to put the camera away, ignore the scenery, and concentrate on putting one foot in front of the other one. Because that is how life improves. However long the question lingers on our lips, however long it comes to the point of our, our lament returning to rejoicing, that's how life improves, by keeping on living, by keeping on moving, by keeping on pressing forward. Psalm 13 captures this tension between the acknowledgement of the pain of failure and defeat and remembering in precisely those moments, precisely those moments, that God is not done with us. It's a good thing always to remember that the purpose of worship is to glorify God. That, that is the primary purpose for which we gather at 11 o'clock or 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings or any other time. It is to glorify God. But it is equally important to note that the secondary purpose of our worship is not to leave us where we are, but to help us look forward, to look forward through the lens of the gospel to that time and place of doxology when in the grace of God the dirge gives way to the dance. And when that happens, or perhaps until that happens, there is no more sure way to offer doxology to the God with whom we can go at it, hammer and tongs, than to live the lives that God has given to us, to lean into the vocation, the calling that God has placed before us, to seek to be as authentically and deeply human with one another as we are able. Because faith is a marathon, not a sprint. And our whole lives 
take place within the security of God's powerful, unchanging love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Walking by faith and not by sight, together let us confess the faith of the Church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As God waits to be gracious to us, may we not make God wait for us to be generous.
Together, let us respond to the cries of God's children with our tithes and our offerings.
Gracious God, who provides for our needs before we ask in Jesus Christ, by your grace, speedily use these offerings of our hands and hearts to answer those crying out to you for help and hope even now. Amen. Let us pray. High and holy God, what language shall we borrow to thank you for hearing our cries, for answering our prayers, for enduring our silence? Lest our laments outdistance our longing, sing in us, we pray, a song whose rhythms and rhymes resist our well-rehearsed default of despair. Teach us anew the scales of rejoicing. Reorient us by way of the story of your saving purposes until we begin to live as those who trust that our destination is love and not the grave. Even so, in this mean time, we beseech you to mold us like clay in your merciful almighty hand, mending our broken places, strengthening our weaker parts, and picking up our far-flung pieces. In this week when the lament of one would seem to cancel the lament of another, hear our prayers for those who cried, how long? as they woke to headlines of justice delayed, or denied, or dismantled. For dreamers who live each day on the knife edge of hope. For descendants of slaves who have yet to overcome the history we are ashamed to teach. For women who live more and more in the life-threatening crucible that pregnancy has become. For students whose access and opportunity has twice been diminished. For the LGBTQ community wondering again if they live one pace away from the closet. For all these, we cry to you to provide a ram, a voice, a community in the thicket whose witness to the triumph of love over death might lend courage to your most vulnerable children. For elected leaders wrestling with matters of enormous consequence. For judges holding in their hands the earthly power to bind and to loose. For journalists laboring to separate truth from the lie for teachers who simply want to teach, and for preachers grown weary in well-doing. We ask for each the gifts of wisdom and steadfastness, humility and mercy. For those who continue to want for food and shelter, for the frightened and the forgotten running toward freedom, for the oppressed and imprisoned with nothing left to lose, for the innocent caught in the crossfire of war or cultures of violence. We ask evidence of your tangible providing 
be given each one by way of a glimpse of your reign invading the ordinary in the work of your church. Finally, hear our prayers for those near to our hearts. We ask your great comfort, your strength and courage, your healing hand, your presence surround those whose names we call in silence. Having dared these prayerful cries of how long, O Lord, nevertheless, our life goes on in endless song above earth's lamentations. We hear the real and far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, we hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in our souls. How can we keep from singing and now from praying together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
I'm really not 100% sure, although we could do the, the research and find the history, as to when the Christian church began to believe somehow that God needed to be treated with kid gloves. No, that's not even biblical. With reverence, yes. And we revere God with our honesty. So sing the song that God has given you to sing. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.